Part One, Chapter Seven of the Dead Letter by Meta Victoria Fuller Victor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eleanor. One week, another, a third, a fourth passed by. Our village was as if it had never been shaken by a fierce agitation. Already the tragedy was as if it had not been, except to the household whose fairest flower it had blighted. People no longer looked over their shoulders as they walked. The story now only served to enliven the history of the little place when it was told to a stranger. Everything that human energy could accomplish had been done to track the murder to its origin, yet not one step had been gained since we sat that Wednesday afternoon in the parlour, holding a council over the handkerchief. Young and healthful as I was, I felt my spirits breaking down under my constant unavailing exertions. The time for my examination came, which could not be unsuccessful, I had so long been thoroughly prepared, but I had lost my keen interest in this era of my life, while my ambition grew torpid. To excel in my profession had become, for the time, quite the secondary object of my life. My brain grew feverish with the harassment of restless objects, the recoil of thwarted ideas. There was not one in the family group, always excepting that unseen and cloistered sufferer, who betrayed the wear and tear of our trouble as much as I. James remarked once, that I was improved by losing some of my boyish ruddiness. I was toning down, he said. On another occasion, with that Mephistopheles smile of his, he observed that it must be that I was after the handsome rewards. The sum total would make a comfortable setting out for a person just starting in the world. I do not think he wished to quarrel with me. He was always doubly pleasant after any such waspish sting. He was naturally satirical, and he could not always curb his inclination to be so at my expense. In the meantime, an impression grew upon me that he was watching me, with what intent I had not yet decided. In all this time I had not seen Eleanor. She had recovered from her illness, so as to be about her room, but had not yet joined the family at meals. I went frequently to the house. It had been a second home to me ever since I left the haunts of my boyhood, and the old red-brick mansion, with the Grecian portico, were almost reflected in the waters of Seneca Lake, so close to the shore did it stand, and where my mother still resided, amidst the friends who had known her in the days of her happiness, that is, of my father's life. With the same freedom as of old, I went and came to and from Mr. Argyle's. I was not apprehensive of intruding upon Eleanor, because she never left her apartments, while Mary, gay young creature, troubled and grieved as she was, could not always stay in the shadow. At her age the budding blooms of womanhood require sunshine. She was lonely, and when she left her sister to the solitude which Eleanor preferred, she wanted company, she said. James was gloomy and would not try to amuse her. Not that she wanted to be amused, but everything was so sad, and she felt so timid. It was a relief to have anyone to talk to, or even to look at. I felt very sorry for her. It became a part of my duty to bring her books, and sometimes to read them aloud through the lengthening evenings, at others to while away the time with a game of chess. The piano was abandoned out of respect for the mourner in the chamber above. Carols would rise to Mary's lips, as they rise from a lark at sunrise, but she always broke them off, drowning them in sighs. Her elastic spirit constantly asserted itself, while the tender sympathy of a most warm, affectionate nature as constantly depressed it. She could not speak of Eleanor without tears, and for this my heart blessed her. She did not know if the choking in my own throat 
which often prevented me from speaking, when I ought, perhaps, to be uttering words of help or comfort. James was always hovering about like a restless spirit. It had been one of his indolent habits to spend a great deal of time with the young ladies, and now he was forever in the house, but so uneasy, so irritable, as Mary said, he was not an agreeable companion. He would pick up a book in the library. In five minutes he would throw it down, walk twice or thrice up and down the hall, out upon the piazza, back into the parlor, and stand looking out of the windows, then to the library to take up another book. He had the air of one always listening, always waiting. He had, too, a kind of haunted look, if my reader can imagine what that is. I guessed that he was listening and waiting for Eleanor, whom, like myself, he had not seen since the Sunday so memorable. But the other look I did not seek to explain. There had been a light fall of snow. It seemed as if winter had come in November. But in a few hours this aspect vanished. The snow melted like a dream. The zenith was a deep molten blue, transfused with the pale sunshine, which is only seen in Indian summer. A tender mist circled the horizon with a zone of purple. I could not stay in the office that afternoon. So infinitely sad, so infinitely lovely. I put aside the law papers which I had been arranging for a case in which I was first to appear before a jury and make my maiden argument. The air, soft as that of summer and scented with the indescribable perfume of perishing leaves, came to me through the open window, with a message calling me abroad. I took up my hat, stepped out upon the pavement, and wandering along the avenue in the direction of the house, went in upon the lawn. I had thought to go out into the open country for a long walk, but my heart drew me and held me here. The language of all beauty and of infinity itself is love. The divine melancholy of music, the deep tranquillity of summer noons, the softened splendor of autumn days, haunting one with ineffable joy and sadness. What is the name of all this varying demonstration of beauty but love? I walked beneath the trees, slowly, my feet nestling among the thickly strewn leaves, and pressing a faint aroma from the moist earth. To and fro for a long time I rambled, thinking no tangible thoughts, but my soul silently filling, all the time, like a fountain fed by secret springs. To the back of the lawn, extending around and behind the flower-garden, was a little ascent, covered by a grove of elms and maples, in the midst of which was a summer-house, which had been a favorite resort of Eleanor's. Hither I finally bent my steps, and seating myself, looked musingly upon the lovely prospect around and beneath me. The rustic temple opened toward the river, which was visible from here, rolling in its blue splendor across the exquisite landscape. There is a fascination in water, which will keep the eyes fixed upon it through hours of reverie. I sat there, mindful of the near mountains, the purple mist, the white ships, the busy village, but gazing only at the blue ripples forever slipping away from the point of my observation. My spirit exhaled like the mist and ascended in aspiration. My grief aspired, and arose in passionate prayers to the white throne of the eternal justice. It arose in tears, etherealized and drawn up by the rays from the one great source and sun, the spirit of love. I prayed and wept for her. No thought of myself mingled with these emotions. Suddenly a slight chill fell upon me. I started to perceive that the sun had set. A band of orange belted the west. As the sun dropped behind the hills, the moon came up in the east. It seemed as if her silver light frosted what it touched. The air grew sharp, 
a thin white cloud spread itself over the river. I had sat there long enough, and I was forcing myself to a consciousness of the fact when I saw one coming through the flower garden and approaching the summer-house. My blood paused in my veins when I saw that it was Eleanor. The sunset yet lingered, and the cold moonlight shone full on her face. I remembered how I had seen her, that last time but one, glowing and flushing in triumphant beauty, attired with the most skilled coquetry of a young, beloved woman who is glad of her charms because another prizes them. Now she came along the lonesome path, between the withered flower-beds, clothed in deepest black, walking with a feeble step, one small white hand holding the sable shawl across her chest, a long crape veil thrown over her head, from which her face looked out, white and still. A pang like that of death transfixed me as I gazed at her. Not one rose left in the garden of her young life. The ruin through which she walked was not so complete, but this garden would resurrect itself in the months of another spring, while for her there was no spring on this side of the grave. Slowly she threaded her way, with bent gaze, through the garden, out upon the hillside, and up to the little rustic temple in which she had spent so many happy hours with him. When she had reached the grassy platform in front of it, she raised her eyes and swept a glance around upon the familiar scene. There were no tears in her blue eyes, and her lips did not quiver. It was not until she had encircled the horizon with that quiet, beamless look that she perceived me. I rose to my feet, my expression only, doing reverence to her sorrow, for I had no words. She held out her hand, and as I took it, she said with gentleness, as if her sweetness must excuse the absence of her former smiles, "'Are you well, Richard? You look thin. Be careful of yourself. Is it not too chilly for you to be sitting here at this hour?' I pressed her hand and turned away, vainly endeavouring to command my voice. I had changed, but it was like Eleanor to put herself aside and remember others. "'Nay, do not go,' she said, as she saw that I was leaving her out of fear of intruding upon her visit. "'I shall remain here but a few moments, and I will lean upon your arm back to the house. I am not strong, and the walk up the hill has tired me. I wanted to see you, Richard. I thought some of coming downstairs a little while this evening. I want to thank you.' The words were just whispered and she turned immediately and looked away at the river. I understood her well. She wanted to thank me for the spirit which had prompted me in my earnest, though unsuccessful, efforts. And coming down to the family group a little while in the evening, that was for Mary's sake, and her poor father's. Her own light had expired, but she did not wish to darken the hearthstone any more than was unavoidable. She sunk down upon the seat I had vacated, remaining motionless, looking upon the river and the sky. After a time, with a long, tremulous sigh, she arose to go. A gleam from the west fell upon a single violet, which, protected from the frost by the projecting roof, smiled up at us, near the door of the summer-house. With a wild kind of passion breaking through her quiet, Eleanor stooped, gathered it, pressed it to her lips, and burst into tears. It was her favorite flower, Henry's favorite. It was agony to see her cry, yet better, perhaps, than such marble repose. She was too weak to bear this sudden shock alone. She leaned upon my shoulder, every sob which shook her frame echoed by me. Yes, I am not ashamed to confess it. When manhood is fresh and unsullied, its tears are not wrung out in those single drops of mortal anguish which the rock gives forth when time 
and the foot of the world have hardened it. I could still remember when I had kissed my mother, and wept my boyish troubles well upon her breast. I should have been harder than the nether millstone, had I not wept tears with Eleanor then. I mastered myself in order to assist her to regain composure, for I was alarmed lest the violence of her emotion should break down the remnant of her frail strength. She, too, struggled against the storm, soon growing outwardly calm, and with the violet pressed to her bosom with one hand, with the other she clung to my arm, and we returned to the house, where they were already looking for Eleanor. Under the full light of the hall lamp we encountered James. It was his first meeting with his cousin, as well as mine. He gave her a quick, penetrating look, held out his hand, his lips moved as if striving to form a greeting. It was evident that the change was greater than he expected. He dropped his hand before her fingers had touched it, and rushing past us through the open door, he closed it behind him, remaining out until long after tea. When he came in, Eleanor had retired to her chamber, and Mary brought him the cup of tea which she had kept hot for him. "'You're a good girl, Mary,' he said, drinking it hastily, as if to get rid of it. "'I hope nobody will ever make you look like that. I thought broken hearts were easily mended, that girls usually had theirs broken three or four times, and patched them up again. But I have changed my mind.' That gloomy look, which Mary declared she dreaded, clouded his face again. His countenance was most variable. Nothing could excel it in glitter and brilliant color when he was in his pleasing mood, but when sullen or sad it was sallow and lusterless. Thus it looked that evening. But I must close this chapter now and here. It is consecrated to that meeting with the object of my sorrow and adoration, and I will not prolong it with the details of other events. End of Part 1 Chapter 7